We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode and then come back for this one. Is there anyone who inspires you today? Poets and theologians, I don't, I'm just curious who inspires you. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, I find her work to be amazing. I think she's one of the finest commentators on Midrash that's alive. I mean, I've read most of her books, but the book that I particularly turn to is The Murmuring Teak, which is Reflections on the Biblical Unconscious, published by Shocking Books. And she brings Hebrew linguistics, etymology, a deep respect for the theological traditions, um, a deep wisdom about the traditions of rabbis' discussion, midrash, contemporary literature, as well as contemporary psychoanalysis, all to bear on a couple of lines sometimes. She, at one point, she looks at um, the line from the end of Genesis chapter 2, now the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. And she does various things with the reflection of that, one of which is to look at the word unashamed. And she suggests that, maybe it suggests that they weren't late to themselves. And so she talks about how shame is a delay um, between um, action and reflection. And that somehow some kind of sense of intrinsic dignity is uh, bringing together those things. Uh, she's extraordinary. Um, at once overwhelming and utterly followable along. I think all you have to do is just read slightly slower than you normally do and you feel like you're eating at the most sumptuous feast. So I, I love her work. I, I could talk for a long time about the poets whose work I read. I think Marie Howe's work on Magdalene is amazing. I, 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 know, I know Marie well and I know her work well and all of her work is really extraordinary. Um, the, the work Magdalene <clears throat> most recently has done something very, very interesting um, in that. I think Jericho Brown's um, work in the New Testament is a very, very interesting approach to the question of God and language and body. I think of Patrick Kavanagh, probably my favourite dead Irish poet. I have various categories of poets that I like, and so I have a category of dead Irish poets, and he's my favourite dead Irish poet. And um, he, I think, two-thirds of his poems were all questioning or in in relation to the question of the God and how to engage with that. And I have found that to be really insightful because his poetry is is utterly earthy in its Irishness. It is recognisable for its landscape and for its references and and its place names as well. And he was a huge influence in Seamus Heaney. So I've just been come to the end of a year of reading through most of the work of Lorna Goodison, who's um, currently the Poet Laureate of Jamaica. And I have really found her work to seem hymnotic or scriptural in the way that she writes. She has a great poem called um, For My Mother May I Inherit Half of Her Strength, which just comes across like a blessing even in its title, never mind its own, the, the body of the poem. So those are just some of the people that I turn to. It, it is mostly poets that I turn to for theology. I mean, I have a friend, Scott McDougall, who speaks about, um, he's a systematic theologian, and I regularly laugh at him at the idea of systematic theology having anything tangible to contribute to the human experience. And then he, um, <laughs> he tells me to shut up. 
<laughs> then he gives a very, very fine defense, which which highlights my lack of knowledge um, rather than anything of his that needs to be defended. And he speaks about um, systematic theology as a process. So there is some magnificent, magnificently written um, systematic theologies and moral theologies. I tend to spend a lot of time in the intuitive world of um, poetic theology and, and seeing what's happening there. And I think the the three of us, we were all huge poetry lovers and it's a topic on this a podcast all the time. And and I just, you know, as somebody who teaches theology uh, at university and stuff, I I tend toward poetic theology myself. I, it's the original theology. It's like if I go back to the early church of Ephraim and then if you go to scripture, which everything is written poetic, you know, there's so many poetic voices, whether it's the Hebrew scriptures of, you know, Genesis or the Psalms or, but even the, yeah. par- the parables, it's, it just seems to me that story and poem is going to, it's, it's, as you said before, somehow the use of language that doesn't trap, mm-hmm. that doesn't trap us, but as Cassidy then says, it, it opens up space for possibilities and doesn't quelch and, and, and cut people off. It actually opens up. And it seems to me that if we're going to talk about incarnation, we would have to take that very seriously. If a, the God of incarnation would, has to be a poetry lover, it would seem to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Or is perhaps poem. Yes, beautiful. So Cassidy just asked the question of who inspires you. You know the poets. Who besides the? I assume the poets are part of this. But is there? Would you give a separate answer? Because oftentimes we ask the question of, do you have a, a person who represents silence for you? Uh, like a, what we sometimes call a silence hero, either in prayer, prophetic action, um, you know, embodiment, something along those lines where. What silence, the best of silence for you? Is there someone in your life other than poets that does that? Or is that last answer you gave us, would that respond better? Would you prefer just to um, talk to poets? No, no, there's a great host of um, people who I admire enormously. I mean, Ignatius of Loyola is an old friend for me. I find myself in good company with him. Um, and I find that I turn to him quite regularly in his language, what he says, mm. what he doesn't say. Similarly, Augustine of Hippo, I really like Augustine. Um, not because he's necessarily brilliant, because he's not. And because during the right. broken period of my life, I could turn to him and get great comfort mm. in his brokenness. Mm. Which I don't think he intended. I think he was trying to be pretty perfect. But <laughs> it, was, it was the arrogance of that. He confessed to all the wrong things. And the things that he should have been confessing to, he wasn't. Right. You know, he was confessing to trying to watch child for wanting milk you know when he shouldn't have been that but he wasn't confessing to dumping the woman who he loved and who loved him and with whom he had a child mm. you know and then taking with somebody who he didn't care just so that he could get his sexual needs satisfied and he never confessed to that part mm. but he was worried about he had purity in the wrong direction and i actually found that very helpful and guiding during a very difficult period of time um i've done the stations of the cross for years um as a kind of a walking meditation and i think as i think of this is, these aren't people, although I suppose it is Jesus of Nazareth and all the associated community of people around him, the Roman soldiers included and Pilate, because I, I see them as the the template where I can find echoes of myself. So I, I find comfort, um, a strange kind of comfort in their, in, in the bearing witness to everything about them. Mother Julian of Norwich, I read her Revelation of Divine Love a long time ago and found it mad. I mean, utterly crazy. I, I love what he did with gender. He is our most per- perfect mother. <laughs> it's just wonderful. So 
of course, Rumi, Hafiz, turning to Midrash, uh, all of these great sources of wisdom, things that know that they don't know, and therefore they're not trying to be comprehensive or giving an addictive certitude to their consumers or to their readers. They're seeking to create a space where you can listen to yourself. And I find that very, very helpful. I'm curious, what advice would you have for the beginning poet, for, oh. for somebody who's just trying to find their voice? Well, there'd be a few pieces of advice. Uh, write a lot, read a lot, find some friends who look at your stuff. I, I think those three pieces are, are, are good. I was, I was reading something the other day that spoke about the poems that we tend to... Um, the poems that we tend to write towards the beginning of a poetic career have a particular quality of rawness to them. Now, I wonder if people would say make that to be the same today. There, there can be an immediate imagination between writing and thinking, oh, when, when am I going to get my book deal? Uh, or when is my poem going to go viral on Twitter or on Instagram? And those are good things, you know, but there's something about the space of loneliness and silence in writing something and wondering Will this stand the test of time? I know poets who won't show a poem to anyone before it's sat for a year, some editing, etc. but that they need it to distill, a good whiskey, that it needs to have that kind of quality to it. So I would think 999,999 poets are not going to make money from their poetry, but they're poets anyway. So there might be one in a million poets who will make money from it. So the idea of fame is, I don't think, the deepest engagement with poetry. For me, the deepest engagement with poetry is, do you need to write it? Is it writing you? Um, what is it saying that you don't understand? Where are the threads in it where you're like, I don't know where that came from or why it's there, but it needs to be there. Write with that kind of intelligence and write well. There are a few techniques, you know. I think it's a great idea to write your poem and then strip out all the adjectives and adverbs and just look at the skeleton of the poem and see what's that doing. Because typically adjectives and, ad and adverbs are trying to coerce or control. And so it's really good to put a couple back in, but it's really interesting to see the raw skeleton of it to think, does this, this work just by itself? Um, stick with one metaphor rather than exhausting people with many metaphors. And then maybe put in too many or to, you know, mess around with it and see how the poem is becoming a scripture written by you for you and creating a world of meaning in, in yourself and share that with people. Yeah, I think those are the kinds of things that I'd say. But I think anybody who wants to write poetry needs to write poetry. <laughs> and poetry is a vast ocean and there are many strands and beaches and cliffs and depths in it. Just find a corner that you know. You know, maybe you think, well, I've always loved this poet or that poet or these, you know, get a few and read some of their work. Um, some dead ones, some living ones. It's a really good idea. If you speak another language badly, it's a great idea to read some poetry in that language. You don't have to understand everything. I take poetry pilgrimages. Um, a few years ago, I read through all the work of Emily Dickinson over the course of two years. And I am no more wiser about Emily Dickinson now than I was then, but I, I survived. <laughs> and I've seen some strange things. And I'm not sure I would survive reading her um, and a chain. So. Padraig, what is the most difficult thing for you to write about? And perhaps so, also, what is the easiest? I'm not great at writing about nature. I, mm. uh, I don't know why. 
I love nature and I, you know, I, I like being in it and I like looking at it. If I can get the chance to see the sea wherever I am, I will, or especially waves. But I was just reading some poetry today from a poet, Sean Hewitt, and he's got the most magnificent um, description of a tree and another poem about an owl. And it's beautiful and it's wild and it's brilliant and it's raw. And I was looking at it in great admiration, but thinking what a foreign language that is to me, for me to write. Um, I was asked to write an eco poem for the Nomad podcast that's coming out for Earth Day in April. Now, obviously, they wanted a poem about the Earth within the broader context of ecology and environmental concerns. So I wrote one called um, The Tree of Knowledge. I think the first line is, um, having, e- having eaten only one fruit from it, we cut the tree of knowledge down. Straight, straight away and straight back into theology of the Garden of Eden. And that tree of knowledge. Uh, <laughs> so I find that I find that strangely difficult to write, and I, that doesn't bother me. You know, I, I write the poems I write, um, but I, I don't know why. Um, I have been playing around with different forms of voice. I have a new book finished that I'm looking for a publisher for, and um, I have been pay- playing around with speaking in different voices, which has been great fun, and I've really enjoyed that. Um, so there, of course, you can change and evolve, um, but I'd be surprised if I found myself writing nature poetry. But I'd be delighted. Also, so. <laughs> I don't know what's easy for me to write, but certainly what I find myself continuing to draw back to write is poems about the human condition and mm. poems about the body and the body as it relates to the inner life and the outer life, and and using the motif of um, either violence or scripture within the context of that, because I think both of those do something very, very interesting to reveal um, parts of the human condition to us, both violence and scripture. I detect just kind of a subtext of play in the way you talk about, when you were talking about uh, advice to a young poet, but also talking about your own process. So I just want to kind of underline that. I I, I hear a playfulness there, and that that speaks to me. So... I think that's important. Yeah, well, I I do find the engagement with language to be great fun. It's it's enjoyable. I mean, it's word games rather than anything humorous. I don't think you'd laugh at one would laugh at things, but um, there is something creative about the possibility of using language to to make something. After many years of being wor- of working in conflict resolution, I realized that I wanted to move away from conflict resolution and move into creativity. Of course, creativity has sustained me during all those years in writing poetry and reading poetry, but I needed to move into something that was explicitly creative because I think for me, conflict resolution and direct conflict resolution was a career rather than my career. My deepest vocation, I think, is to being a poet and to looking at the creative possibilities of language. And of course, there's an element of that within conflict resolution. I still teach some conflict resolution but I'm not involved in mediating conflicts anymore. This conversation on encountering silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us.
Do you have a favorite thing that you've written? Yeah, I do have things that I'm really proud of. The poem, um, readings from the Book of Exile, I'm proud of. It's a poem that kind of creates chapters throughout that book. Yeah. I wrote a song called Maranatha years ago. I, I published an album, or published, produced, or released an album years ago called Hymns to Swear By. Uh, a rendition of, of Jeremiah's laments in that. And I'm very pleased with that. Yeah, there's various things that I'm pleased with, um, but uh, that, that those things come in community. And I think the idea of being pleased with something is because it rings true rather than you think it's better than anybody else's. I'm uninterested as to in the game of comparison, but I am interested in the game of questioning myself to go, does that ring true? Have I been um, over-decorating it with smart language and trying to be clever? I want to rip those things out. So Mary Oliver says, I know a lot of fancy words, I rip them from my mouth and then I pray. Or maybe mm-hmm. she says, I tear them from my tongue. I can't remember. Something like that. And I I think that good writing is something that has had a scalpel applied to it. And so pieces that I have edited or, or had been edited by others, I'm really pleased with. Um, the woman who edited um, In the Shelter, Catherine Venn, is an extraordinary editor. And I found her work to be so careful. And it was a magnificent thing to be so clearly read and to be told uh, at various points in the book to say, you're not being yourself here. What are you avoiding? What's going on? What are you hiding behind? Deeper anxiety up, speak, you know. So um, yeah, I love all that process, I think. And being edited is a, is a glorious experience. So not easy, of course, God Almighty. Yeah. I've just finished off called um, This Is A Body. It takes, this is my body, and it crosses out my, and has a body. And it's for a book called When Did You See Me Naked? that's coming out later on this year. Book of Theology. I've written 14, 14 lines for it, um, which is going into looking at versions of the Stations of the Cross to um, stop and pause on experience um, where that has been terrible, as well as where that has been really, um, where that has been terrible, as well as where that has been um, violent. Um, and where there has been good attempts to reach out, as well as small moments of dignity that happen. So I was trying to speak to the sexual embodiment, particularly of communities of people who've had that removed from us. I'm struck by all the discussion here around editing, noticing the different voices, the different aspects that pop up into either the po- either into the poetic or into the uh, theological here, where Again, it feels like there seems to be two kind of voices going on. There's multiple voices. And what what the editing process seems to be is not so much a cutting as a or, – or, you know, taking the fancy words, ripping them from our tongue is, is not so much a cutting away as it is dropping anything that's not of the voice of the body. Because what will happen is a lot of times – I know when I write that there's the the part of me, I don't know where it comes from. And that's lovely when that sits on the page. And then there's the part of me where I'm being smart, Yeah. you know, and I'm playing games. Yeah. I'm being quite performative for myself and I get to congratulate myself about how brilliant, how brilliant I am. So what it seems to me is that you're describing learning how to let go of the performative and and let the other yeah. voice speak. 
Well, to write from the place of not knowing. To yes. You're being totally tidied up um, to write from the place of not knowing. Um, and that's raw and vulnerable. Um, but I think that's partly where you can connect with people in unexpected ways. Um, I went, as Cassidy had mentioned, I went through some um, exorcisms and reparative therapies um, many years ago to get rid of the gay devils in me. And uh, many years later, 20 years later, I felt distant enough from those things where for the first time ever it occurred to me, I'm going to write some poems about that. And it wasn't that I had thought, oh, I, I can't write poems about it because it's too close. It hadn't even occurred to me, even though mm. I thought about those things a lot, of course. Anyway, I was on a train down to Dublin and thought about that. And um, I found myself thinking, because I, I like form, I really enjoy form. And so I found myself thinking, what would I like, how would I like to create this and what would I like to write around it? Because I needed a form to hold it. And I decided on, the, on sonnets. So I wrote um, seven deadly sonnets to play on seven deadly sins to have a little critical and playful conversation, I think, regarding the idea of sinfulness. And of course, one of the primary impulses I recognised in the initial writing about the first exorcism, which was very loud and very public and people screaming at the devil in me. And it was, I was outed suddenly to this whole community of people. And it was frightening and all this kind of stuff. There was a, a, a kind of a human impulse to say, I don't have a devil in me. I don't have a devil in me. There was no devil in me. But Sonnet wouldn't let me say that. Uh, Sonnet kept on insisting, really, to pay attention as I edited, because I was wanting to stick to 14 lines. I, the sonnet kept on saying, oh, get rid of that line, get rid of that line. And I realised that I wanted to speak about the nest of devils in me. Um, they just weren't gay ones. There's plenty of other devils. Mm. And, to, <clears throat> that, and to come to terms with what it means that um, devils were created in me by being demonised. And that um, the experience... That that's what was my that that was my reality created the very thing that it was seeking to free me from. I didn't know that I knew that, and I don't even think I did know it. The sonnet knew it, and I don't know where that came from. And I'm very pleased for that because I'm looking at that, learning from it. And for me, um, editing according to form is what brings me back to that. Not every poet is mm. like um, other people write other things, um, but I, I do really appreciate perform sound and Mimi Calvati I think is one of the finest writers of sonnets working these days she's an amazing poet working out of Britain she's got a great mm. full-length volume of poetry Petrarchan sonnets all of them all in beautiful rhyming form called afterwardness it's really worthwhile pursuing and patients like Babby also two people working out of Britain um, mm. I, I think I think the language has its own intelligence and has its own intuition. And out of the 20,000 words available, somehow language chose to go on the page in a particular way and is asking not to be used to overly decorate something, but to reveal something of a mystery and to reveal something where there's an echo and where there's a, a call and a cry for some kind of companionship and shared understanding of each other. Your story of... Um... The exorcisms and, and writing about it reminded me of this this James Baldwin piece I was reading today, an essay called Nothing Personal, which he wrote in 1964. And he says, it has always been much easier because it, it has always seemed much safer to give a name to the evil without than to locate the terror within. And yet the terror within is far more truer and far more powerful than any of our labels. 
the labels change and the terror is constant. I mean, obviously he goes on, but it's remarkable and interesting to me that the way that poem unfolded for you and the way that you navigated that by still listening to yourself and who you were, even though, you know, our instinct is often to like this defend, defend ourselves, defend ourselves, tell the truth. And, and while there was certainly a truth there to tell by saying, no, the devil is not in me in terms of my being gay. I mean, just how powerful to navigate that true self within. Yeah. And I probably needed, you know, the 20 years in between the two to even it was longer than 20 years to even begin to be at the space where I could feel far enough to say that without worrying that that vulnerability was going to be to greater harm. Um, safety is a powerful factor in any situation of conflict. Yes. And sure. I feel from all of that now. Um, yeah. So be playful with it and be vulnerable and and turn the the lens back in myself and look at me and to think about where did I not that I'm in any way to blame for all of that but at the same time why didn't I leave why why was I there in the first where was the part of me that now looks with great objection to anything like that where was that part of me because it's not like I've that that was dormant in me why was it dormant who would put it to sleep I wanted to ask those questions too, and I needed decades of safety before. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. Um, so you were uh, leading the Coromila community for what about a five-year period? Is that right? Yeah. And um, but I'm assuming you were involved in conflict resolution long before that. But I'm right. curious how your journey with conflict resolution and peacemaking, how that has formed you as a poet do you have any sense of an arc with that well i suppose like the three main interests and energies and obsessions of my life are conflict religion and poetry and they're all forms of language um so i don't see the three of them as being kind of curious bedfellows i see the three of them as being quite naturally in partnership with each other um, just to have, because you can create hell with your words, and certainly you can also create something very unexpected with your words. And you look at the great witness to all of the scriptural traditions across the world, and look at the various forms of language used in that. It's always going to be poetry as well as other forms, politics, history, uh, mythology. So I, I think. Um, Working with people in conflict resolution, I found, I, I suppose I had thought that poetry was an elevated form of, of, of language and, you know, fighting as a lower form of language. But then you hear people's creativity when they're insulting each other. That's a very elevated form of language. Or when they're threatening each other, do you know? Yeah. You know, this whole idea of smart goals, you know, uh, if you've ever worked in developing a curriculum, you know, you need to have smart goals for your curriculum, strategic. Is there specific measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-oriented, something like that. Yeah. I've worked with people who maybe have not sat and thought through how to give a threat in a smart matrix, but they know how to do it. If you don't do the following, by tomorrow, your body will be floating down this river after lunchtime. Do you know, that's a smart threat. Right. As an S-M-A-R-T. So to step back sometimes and to think about that as a function of language and to think, what went on to that? Why tomorrow? Why lunchtime? 
why your body? Why not you? And that can be very, very interesting sometimes to look at that kind of usage of language. And I suppose I began to realise that um, literature, the great lofty literatures that we pursue and that I adore, most of those never come close to the glory of human conversation and at our most unleashed when we are furious with each other, we say fascinating things. It's worthwhile paying paying literary attention to the quality of language in that place and to pay serious attention to it too. And so rather than being frightened by the threat to say, why lunch? Uh, you know, <laughs> and then suddenly you can open that up because somebody might go, well, I'm going out for dinner tomorrow night with my family. So if I'm going to murder you, I have to have done it by lunchtime because I need to tidy up afterwards. Okay, but suddenly we're talking about the future, and that's very interesting. Um, and I find it um, important, I think, in in the space where language thinks, language has its own idolatry. It thinks if you use words like threat, that we're going to get caught up in the threat. I'm much, much more interested in the grammar and in the other pieces of language that are dancing around at the hems of that. Um, because those things give structure to the entire threat. And let's talk about those. Let's say something unexpected to each other. I wish I remembered the quote, but it's funny you say that. Somebody made the comment, maybe it was the theologian Karl Barth, uh, but something along the lines that grammar is proof that there is a God. (laughs) (laughs) So something along those lines. It just feels like you wanting to dabble in the creativity of, of language in that way. Um, and not be trapped in certain rules and ideology suggests that the god of creativity, you know, it, yeah. ca- it kind of crosses over. Karl Barth is a systematic theologian. He probably meant something very different than what we're doing. But, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but I, maybe, I'll ask my friend. Yeah, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> I'm also reminded, and it's been so long since I've heard this, that I, I know I'm going to mangle the quote, but Terence McKenna, the psychedelic mm. researcher, guru, whatever you want to call him, here in in America. I heard a tape of his many years ago when he was talking about ingesting mushrooms and encountering spirits, and he described the spirits as pure syntax. Hmm. (laughs) And so what, what I took away from that was that syntax is conscious, that there is is a a sentience, if you will. To, to our very grammar. And so you were just reminding me of that in, in this. this um, mm. So thank thank you for that. In the history of the world, Carl, I don't think Carl Barth and Terrace McKenna have ever been put side by side <laughs> to talk about grammar. <laughs> oh, only on Encountering Silence. <laughs> Folks, you, hear, you heard it here. So. <laughs> well, Padraig, I want to be sensitive again to your time and you've given us uh, a lot of time and I, I appreciate that very much. So thank you. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is carlmccollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at encounteringsilence.com. 
There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit patreon.com slash encountering silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. <laughs>